1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communications. I am your host, Marcy Maserato. With me today is Jillian York, uh, author of the book Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism. Jillian, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So to start, um, I would personally love to hear about a little bit more about your professional and uh, educational background. Sure. Um,
2: so I studied sociology at um, Binghamton University in upstate New York. And um, I also happened to study theater as well in addition to that. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that was, that's my educational background for the most part. And after that, like a lot of people that age, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, I moved to Morocco to teach English, um, which is where I first encountered internet censorship. Um, you know, on my own, really kind of just came across it, uh, came across a blocked website and was like, huh, what's going on here? Um, And that really opened my eyes to a whole world of difference outside of the US where I grew up um, and the ways in which governments were restricting, not just the internet, of course, also the press. um, But this was really, this was around 2005. And so it was a moment, a really interesting moment in time um, for the internet and for internet censorship. And from there, um, ended up uh, eventually, at a job at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard, um, where I helped to run a research project that looked—it was called the OpenNet Initiative—and it looked at the ways in which governments were filtering or censoring the internet in more than sixty-five countries, um, and so you know, kind of got really lucky with that, I have to say, um, finding something that really fit my interest at the time. Um, but that enabled me to build a whole network um, around the world. I was part of this amazing project called Global Voices. I'm still still uh, loosely connected to, um, that covered, you know, what people were saying on blogs and social media around the world. So at the same time that, I and that, sorry, that project was also incubated at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard before I was there. Um, and so, yeah, getting to be, Uh, A part of these two projects simultaneously and kind of on the one hand, conducting research and and assisting with research um, into this really fascinating phenomenon while also getting to write about it at the same time really gave me kind of two sides of the coin. Um, and when the Arab uprisings happened uh, just a little over when they started a little over a decade ago, um, I just because of these two pieces of my life um, and, and having lived in Morocco and, and you know, being able to speak some Arabic um, put me in a really interesting position to be called upon as a commentator on those issues. And that ended up leading to uh, my current role, which I've been at um, at. T- for ten years, uh, in May this year, um, where I serve as the director for international freedom of expression at this amazing nonprofit called the Electronic Frontier Foundation, that's been around um, looking at various digital rights issues since 1990. Awesome!
1: Yeah, I like. I love your background. I know you you contextualize <laughs> that a little bit in, in the textbook. Super um, fascinating. You're you're just like this young badass doing awesome things. I <laughs> Love it. I'm like, um, I'm just so energized by, by your work and by your his by, by just your story. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit more about uh, your time in Morocco? Because um, it, it, it feels like if I read correctly, that's kind of what started in really inspiring um, you to, to what led to this book. Yeah, you know, um,
2: I grew up in a relatively small town in New Hampshire, uh, about 30,000 people, and didn't, you know, didn't really get to travel much outside of the U.S. until I was in university. Um, you know, I'd been to Canada and, and the U.K., but that was about it. And so when I was in university, um, the first trip that I went on, it was like part of a part of a course. And I went to Senegal um, and, you know, having never really, I'd barely been to Europe. Um, and I went to Senegal and that kind of opened my mind to like this just... In you know, a whole other part of the world that I knew very little about. And uh, I don't know if it was simultaneous to that or shortly after, but I ended up working in the study abroad office at my university. And at the same time was taking a course on the sociology of Andalusia. And those two things um, kind of got me interested in Morocco. And uh, because we had a, a a study abroad program there and my professor was from there. And so those two things just coalesced really perfectly. And I did a summer abroad there where I was just studying Arabic, um, fell in love with the country. And when I was back in the US, um, the, the year after university doing uh, the AmeriCorps VISTA program, which I think still exists, um, kind of a volunteer program, I spent a lot of my time, a lot of my work day, to be honest, thinking about, like, what am I going to do next? Um, and looking up, um, you know, different jobs there and came across an English teaching job that, you know, didn't require me to have, I mean, I, I know this is probably not a great thing, but didn't require me to have, like, the the um, the TEFL diploma or anything, a TOEFL diploma or anything like that. Um, and so got really lucky with that. and I moved there in the summer of 2005, I think. Um And yeah, just fell in love with the country. I was in the city called Meknez, which is the fourth imperial city of Morocco. Um, And it's great because it has all of the beautiful, incredible history of some of the bigger cities, but without all of the tourists. And so I I just had like a lot of opportunities to really dig in um, to the history of the country. But at the same time, I was also, um, you know, becoming a blogger and trying to create a writing career in my own time. Um, And as such, got connected to a lot of the blogging community that that was very very um, uh, engaged in Morocco at that point. A lot of them, you know, were kind of crossing boundaries, talking about political and religious issues that aren't usually talked about. Um, I write about this in the book, but Morocco really has these kind of three cultural red lines that you don't cross you don't insult the king and the royalty um you don't criticize islam too much and you do not really um engage too much in debate around the um the legitimacy of morocco's claim to the western sahara the sahrawi democratic republic uh, is another name for it mm-hmm. and so um yeah anyway through all of that we've got connected to these other bloggers and that just kind of put me in this position to go you know what there's some stuff missing from the commentary on Morocco. And and a lot of it was really just that these bloggers were writing in Arabic and French. um, And there wasn't a whole lot of information on modern Morocco in English. And so I started just like translating for myself. My language skills are not that great, um, but I started kind of summarizing pieces in the news, writing about them in my own words in English. um, And my blog became kind of popular for a little while. Um, It was called the Morocco report. You can still find it if you look hard enough. It's not really there, but it's, you can find it through like the internet archive. Um, But yeah, through that just got pretty deep into the culture of the time. Um, A lot has changed there since then. And I've only been back a few times for, you know, short trips. Um, But you know, I guess just for this moment in time, I felt like I was really part of something incredible. Um, and, you know, it's kind of sad since then because, uh, you know, the country's cracked down on a lot of that. Um, even back then, there was uh, a lot of kind of turmoil around speech, um, magazines being seized by the government, uh, journalists leaving the country, getting arrested. Um, and it's it's really only gotten worse since the uprisings of 2011 um, and the, the movements that came to the country after that. Um, yeah. I guess that kind of sums it up.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's super fascinating, and and I think that really leads into a lot of what your life work is, which is really um, looking at free speech and looking at this idea of, of censorship, right? And and certainly censorship, I think you you know you really touch upon it in multiple places in your book, where you know there's context is everything. So perhaps we can kind of start with how is you know in in your research and in in the work that you've done. Um, talk a little bit more about uh, the kind of quote general idea of what censorship is, um perhaps in the us or 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 abroad, and then kind of perhaps how you have seen it to to define, which which as you mentioned in your book, it's it's changed. your view has changed. So maybe we can start uh, with with the idea of censorship.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I grew up in a different era than we're in right now. And I think when I was a kid, the concept of censorship was, at least for me, um, you know, had to do with things like book bannings. And um, in the this was like the early 90s. So you had a lot of like, even in my hometown, libraries refusing to carry certain books, schools banning certain books from reading lists. Um, but then also, of course, the, the kind of culture wars that were happening back then around um, early like hip hop and other music. Um, and you remember the explicit lyrics labels and things like that. So that's kind of, my idea was much more of, um, of government and political pressure, um, really kind of the traditional ideas around censorship. And it's actually kind of fascinating because I look back at that a little bit in the book, but it's, it's interesting for me now that, um, a lot of that was coming from lawmakers, which really does kind of reek of state censorship now. (laughs) Um, yeah, just hadn't really, you know, didn't process that until I was writing the book. Um, I was just a kid when a lot of it was happening. But uh, yeah, so, you know, grew up with this kind of conception around state censorship and then encountered much more authoritarian censorship in the Moroccan context. And so I had this, you know, on the one hand, this idea of the US as being like this, this place for radical free speech, which it really isn't and has never been, but we're told that it is, right? And the First Amendment, it's there and the government's not supposed to do things like that, although it does. Um, And then, you know, looking in the Moroccan context where the government has absolute say on what can be published and what can be said, um, and really kind of sometimes gets down to the very granular level of going after people for their speech. And so, you know, that kind of made me think about censorship in a new way and look at it from um, a different perspective. And then all of a sudden, social media hits, uh, you know, right around that time that I was just starting to look at these issues. And I started to immediately see these companies as um, censors in and of themselves, not and this is before the all the stories about government pressure towards them came up. It was just like the companies making their own decisions at this very powerful level, although they were not nearly at the scale that they are now. Um, And so I view censorship, um, and this is still true, although I can tell you where my views change. Um, I view censorship as the term, like the term as being value neutral. And so I think we have to accept it as there are things that we are okay with being censored. Um, Child sexual abuse imagery, I think most of us are fine with that being censored in some way or another, the details might vary. Um, And then there's stuff that we as a society tend to think shouldn't be censored. And then there's the stuff that, you know, large swaths of society disagree with each other on, such as the expression of the nude human body. Um, That's always been a debate in pretty much every society in the world. Um, And so that's why I think it's really important because censorship as a term is very subjective, what we think of as censorship. And that's why it's important to me to keep that word in play for all of these examples. Yeah, Um, and and then I guess to get to the, sorry, to get to the question of how my views have changed, um, you know, I I used to think that these companies shouldn't play that role at all. um, And on some level, I still do. I don't think that corporate um, rule is the right form of rule. I'm not a big fan of that. But, um, you know, I think what's really changed about my view over time is whether or not companies should moderate content on their platforms and the role that government should play in that. And I think really that's just um, something that happened as I've grown up over the years um, and seen the that there is, you know, seeing that there is another way, like there's the European way of looking at this and looking at the, you know, weighing harms when dealing with regulation of speech. Um, It's not perfect, but I think it's much better than um, either of the two other systems that I was more familiar with before. Um, And so, yeah, I guess now I'm at a point where I think that we do have to, think about the harm of speech. I think we have to think about the scale of platforms and the fact that we're in this new era that's just we've never seen this before. We've never been able to talk across cultures the way that we can now. Um, and so we have to consider what that means and what roles authority can or should play in that dynamic.
1: Yeah, I and you know you you talk also about you kind of begin talking about the new gatekeepers, which, you know, certainly we have this, you know, these these media giants and and you Know and looking at Silicon Valley, for example, and content policing and things like that. So, can you um dive deeper into who are the new gatekeepers and um and really what you know? And you also talk about uh 230, which is you know, section 230. Obviously, that's something that just um just I think at the end of last year, you know, they their Congress and and Senate wanting to push towards reforming 230 because. These media, you know, media organizations have gotten so much power and this was even pre, this was obviously certainly pre social media. So we see the shift since social media. So can you expand on that? Just the idea of perhaps starting with the, the, the new gatekeepers and who they are and what that really means for us. Sure.
2: So I'll paraphrase a uh, part of the book. I don't have it in front of me, but um, I think I've given this as a talk a few times. You know, I, I look at it like this. I mean, imagine a world where you've got all of these decisions being made behind closed doors, where there's no democracy, you know, nobody has a vote in the process. Um, we don't know who the, the rule keepers are, we don't know, you know, who these people are sitting in that room. Um, you know, we might have heard a few of their names, seen a few of their faces, but ultimately we don't really know who they are. We don't have a say in who they are. Um, and they're making rules without any kind of of, um, you know, external guidance, uh, or look towards philosophy or history in their in their practice of governance. Um, and that's really who the new gatekeepers are. They're Mark Zuckerberg, they're Jack Dorsey, they're the people who work on those teams and, and a little bit further below them down the chain. Um, but ultimately, these are people who are making these rules from first principles rather than looking toward established um, ideology and thought uh, around what should be acceptable speech. And so, you know, I mean, we don't have to agree with the First Amendment, certainly, but I think that if we look at um the, you know, for example, UN human rights frameworks around speech, we do have solid examples in place for what speech guidelines should look like. Of course, we can deviate from that and update it for the 21st century. Um, And yet at the same time, a lot of people have done this thinking in the past. And then these guys, mostly guys, (laughs) come along. um, And they're, you know, they're largely American, they're largely Ivy Ivy League educated, even when they are women or people of color, they do kind of come from the same um, schools of thought and the same um, social class, economic class. Um, and they're just like, you know what, we're just going to make these rules up from scratch. And uh, so you end up with these platforms like Facebook where a female breast is like completely taboo, um, but it's absolutely fine to, you know, advocate for the overthrow of the state. And I think that that's a really kind of problematic situation. Um, so that's who the new gatekeepers are. And then, you know, on the regulatory side, so section 230, I think it's worth just kind of explaining what it is, because if you read the Wall Street Journal, you would certainly get the wrong idea. They, they get it wrong constantly. So does the New York Times. Um, so section 230 is um, basically it's... so let me explain it like this. There's two ways that these platforms are governed. One is the First Amendment, which is what gives companies the right to curate their platforms as they see fit in the first place. So that's where people get really confused. It's actually that companies are people in the US. And so Facebook is a person that has free speech rights, just like you or me. And as a person, they get to decide what gets said on their platform. And then Section 230 is what protects them from civil liability when they choose not to take things down or when they choose to take things down, um, as long as they're doing so in good faith. And so I mean, it's a little more detailed than that, but that's the basic gist. And so, you know, Section 230 was kind of treated as untouchable for quite some time until a couple of years ago when SESTA-FOSTA, the rule that was intended to um, prevent sex trafficking, but has actually had a huge deleterious effect on, um, everyone from sex workers to, um, burlesque dancers, to people who just want to talk about sex. Um, and that law amended 230 in a really damaging way, in my opinion. And since then, we've seen a number of other proposals from the left and the right, from companies themselves, um, to amend this protection. And I see it as, I mean, I think that the fact that Facebook supports 230 regulation or 230 reform, it you know, says a lot about <laughs> um, okay. what that really means for us. And so from my perspective, you know, I, I do understand why folks are desiring a change in the way that these platforms are regulated and yet Section 230 is not going to do what a lot of people will say that it will do. It's not going to prevent hate speech. It's not going to put levy fines on companies for when they allow hate speech. Because remember, it's just civil um, violations. And more problematically, um, I think that Facebook's support of it really demonstrates that it's not going to solve the competition problem. And in fact, it will entrench Facebook's power because they will be able to afford whatever penalties come their way, whereas a smaller platform like Reddit or even Twitter might not.
1: Yeah. And I I think it's really fascinating. you know, when we think about the reform, and I agree with you that when you have a, a company like Facebook, uh, that also owns Instagram, and and uh, just last year, I was looking at a statistic that almost 50% of Americans don't know that, <laughs> that Facebook owns Instagram. I'm like, hopefully, that's, that's been rectified. But that's, you know, that's really um, mind boggling to me. And so certainly, there's obviously misconceptions about free speech and the First Amendment and reform of, of 230. And so yeah, when you have a, a company like Facebook, who's who's like yes let's do it then obviously that does speak volumes um and you you talk about some uh, perhaps like niche groups uh, that are not necessarily niche but outside of what we usually when we think about censorship and when we think about um who who is impacted and so you you do spend time talking about the impact of uh in in sex workers and and in that community and because there's a there's a lot of um uh, people that that is you know ranging from like you said, burlesque dancers to, um, you know, a full range of, of people who are making that choice, that that consensual, you know, choice to, to make their livelihood in that way, and we often don't really think about that. We, as in quote, society, don't really think about that. Can you explain more about really what that impact is, and how, and and the reasons why we really should be thinking about all of these different groups, and and honestly, the lack, perhaps, the lack of diversity in the conversation of censorship and of these new gatekeepers and of these kind of um, reformed uh, policies, you know, or or wanting to reform policies and laws around um, around the, you know, uh, free speech online.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny, um, they say never read, crit- like, no, don't read the the critiques of your book. Um, but I I made the mistake of doing so really early on when the Goodreads reviews started to come out. And <laughs> there are a lot of folks there that are kind of upset, like, why isn't she talking more about the censorship of people in the right in the US? Or why isn't she talking more about the US in general or political speech? And, you know, I, I have to say, like, there is censorship of people on the right on these platforms. That is real. It is not, how the core issue here. um, And they're not the primary victims. And I think that that's kind of the key point, because over the past few years, two things have happened. One is that, you know, the media is really heavily focused on political speech. And I come from the perspective that political speech is not inherently more important than any other form of speech. Um, I think we've kind of lost sight of that, (laughs) that cultural and artistic expression is also really vital. Um, And then the other one is just, yeah, the media over the past few years, and I mean, I, I know I'm using a blanket term, but it's pretty true globally. Um, they've been really, really focused on the censorship of um, right-wing speech in the U.S. and also you know, other political speech from from other groups as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of why I choose to focus elsewhere. But I think the other part is even more important, which is that I think that the groups that are most impacted by these platforms tend to be some of the most marginalized groups in our societies. Um, right. And so I'll talk about sex workers since you brought it up, because I and also because I think that um, amidst the pandemic, it's it's become a lot more of an important issue. So, I mean, I do believe that sex work is work. Um, I think it's legitimate work. Um, I don't get into the details on a personal level as to where regulation should or should not occur. But nevertheless, I mean, I think that during the pandemic, we've seen that even, even people who are working in completely legal sex industries or uh, prostitution where it's legal jurisdictionally, like in Germany, um, those folks have been heavily, heavily affected by the platform platforms' decisions, and not even their their required decisions under sesta fasta and the law, but the decisions that they make based on their own particular ideologies. And so to give an example, um, Twitch, which started as a gaming live streaming platform, but has since become very popular during the pandemic uh, in particular. Um, uh, I am friends with some burlesque dancers in Berlin. And when the pandemic hit here and they couldn't perform in public, they went to Twitch and they started shows and a lot of this stuff had no nudity in it. Um, Maybe, you know, you might see like, um, breasts with pasties on them. But these folks got banned immediately by these platforms, not just Twitch, but Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. Um, And that to me really just, I mean, I'd been paying attention to this for a couple years, of course, but it really, really hit home in a different way. Um, Because, you know, these are my friends who have every right to work just like I can work from home during the pandemic. And yet they were completely pushed out from every level of society. And that just really broke me, you know? And so I've been like, (laughs) <laughs> excuse me, I've been donating to their Patreon and things like that and trying to find ways to help, but it's, it's become a really intractable problem. Um, and so I think, yeah, that really drives that home, but there's of course plenty of other groups as well. Um, other marginalized communities, whether we're talking about, um, you know, Palestinians and other, other groups throughout the world who are living in disputed territories, um, Syrians who are trying to document the war that's been ravaging their country for nearly, a, I mean, a, a, almost a decade now. Um, uh, that stuff gets taken down all the time as being terrorism, even though it's not. You know, coming from the journalistic perspective, awesome. um, and so yeah, I mean, there's just so many different groups, and I tried to cover a lot of those in the book, but obviously, um, it doesn't cover everyone. And so, to your latter point about kind of where the conversation going now, um, I'm I feel really privileged and lucky to be connected to a global community uh, working on various digital rights issues from. You know, from this stuff to surveillance to everything in between, um, and a lot of the best ideas right now are coming from the global south. And you know, it's been people from um, global south countries that have pushed a lot of this progress and brought folks from from various countries. You know, a lot of whom don't always have the economic privilege that I have to fly to a conference, um, but who've worked really hard to bring those folks into the conversation over the years. And I you know I hope that I've contributed to that in some way too. But really, I mean, the credit goes to folks from these countries um, who. Are thankfully now a serious part of the conversation, at least in the circles that I run in.
1: Yeah, I, I really appreciate the the perspective of of you bringing in these marginalized groups and, and certainly yeah, there's the ongoing debate and there's so much like almost really hyper focus on political speech, and that's not to say that they aren't as you mentioned you know uh, being censored, but there's just such a, a much deeper problematic issue. When, you know, with, with sex, with sex workers being, you know, it's their livelihood and they're not able to actually provide for themselves when they're being banned or not being offered a space in which they can continue their work. So, so that is a lot more problematic than anybody on the left or right being able to just, you know talk politics or talk shop or whatever. So,
2: yeah. And, and, and they don't always have, you know, I mean,
1: like there was a
2: lot of hullabaloo about Trump getting up, sorry, kicked off these platforms, but he can go on television. Um, and your average sex worker cannot, not even to the degree that, I mean, you know, obviously I think that the political speech around a lot of issues is really important. And there are groups like, uh, the movement for black lives and, you know, Palestinian activists and, and various other folks who don't, who also, you know, don't have the ability to go on TV either. And yet you know, these are still much more connected movements. These folks can go out in the streets and protest. They do, um, which is not to say the censorship on these platforms isn't terrible, but we're not, we'll still hear about them. But sex workers are just completely disappeared from these spaces and from the mainstream media. Their voices are not included in bills like SESTA-FOSTA. I mean, I know for a fact that, you know, the authors of that bill did a very, very poor job of consulting with anyone, even on the margins of the, the sex industries. Um, yeah. And so that's really like, I think that that group is probably right now the most impacted, although thankfully they're gaining a voice in the mainstream.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: And how do you, um, and, and perhaps whether you thought, thought about this or, or, or talked about it or, or with you know, those who you know in the community. What are what are some solutions to bring, you know, the voice to the voiceless and visibility to those who are invisible at, in the periphery of, of society? How do how do we find, you know, how do we ally? How do we make that better? How do we empower them?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I and I will say this: like, I should give the caveat that most of the sex workers that I talked to from my book are still coming from relatively privileged perspectives, in the sense that they're, you know, they're from the U.S. or Europe for the most part. A lot of them do have platforms in like mainstream porn or um, in other work that they do, and most of them have not been, you know, suffering that greatly during the pandemic um, because they're connected and networked. So they, you know. I will say that they're all really incredible people. And a lot of what they do is trying to solve this problem, trying to connect with voices globally and bring those voices to the fore. And so I see myself as really just a minor, minor bridge figure here um, in doing that work. But that said, you know, I think that um, a lot of the conversations I've had over the past couple of years with, with, um, some of the sex work and kink community in Berlin where it's, it's much more accepted here, right? Like it's funny because these folks could probably go out on the street and do a performance if it weren't freezing here, um, <laughs> and be naked and wouldn't get in trouble for it, but they can't go online. <laughs> um, right. so, so yeah, so I think that, um, you know, one of the things is like, let's see what we can do in Europe. Um, can we create platforms here where things are more acceptable um, and compete with the platforms in the US under a different regulatory structure? Um, that's still, it's a little troubling because we are seeing a rightward shift here politically. We're seeing the UK come up with this, you know, ridiculous concept of online harms that includes a lot of. Um, really troubling things um, that fall under the, you know, the category of sexual expression. Um, but I think that that's one thing. I think another one is just, you know, whatever we as as folks outside of that industry can do to lend a hand in connecting various voices. I and mean, I think that's one thing I'm I'm trying to do is like, you know, bridging my German communities with my U.S. ones. Um, that can be really powerful, especially when a lot of those folks have connections in other parts of the world where these these professions are even more at risk. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of it comes down to like networking, campaigning um, and and bringing various voices together to create a much more powerful movement. Um, And so I hope that, you know, I hope I've contributed even even a very minor way to that.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, opening up the dialogue, the lines of dialogue is, is a great step. Um, to, to really have you know because you want we want inclusive dialogue, not just diverse dialogue it's just not about not not just about seeing that other people are, are different or doing different things, but really being inclusive and bringing those voices to the table um, as you mentioned with you know there, there are laws out there that are created where I'm like did you not consult with the people who <laughs> um, are in these communities that are impacted by these and and sometimes even, you know, laws, but, but like rules with, when we talk about, you know, Silicon Valley, I mean, did, did, did you guys actually talk to, to the right people? Right. Yeah, yeah. And the answer is that they didn't.
2: I mean, there's, I just saw one go by. I, I feel like I'm maybe talking out the side of my mouth at the moment on this one, because it's not really that public yet, but there's a company that has a set of rules um, that basically they do not export certain LGBTQ I plus, um, like, which letters are we using these days, but I'm trying to get it right. Um, They don't export certain features that fall under that category to certain countries. And I was like, why? What's the reasoning behind that? And so it seems like the reasoning is, you know, at least altruistic in some sense. They're trying to protect people in those countries from their own governments. And yet who made that decision and why a bunch of, again, Americans thinking that they know what's best for another group in the world. And so ultimately what you have there is like, let's say you're, I don't know. Um, let's use Lebanon as an example, because it is a slightly more progressive place. Um, you've got a strong queer community there and yet those folks can't speak about their issues on these platforms because somebody at that company decided that it was unsafe for them to do so. And I find that to be incredibly paternalistic. Um, For Westerners to make that decision about anyone else, and so I think that that's the sort of thing where, you know, I'm really, really troubled by the the colonialistic um, mindset of these platforms. Um, I I didn't coin this term; several people have used it. I don't know who originated it, but digital colonialism is really kind of what it comes down to.
1: Yeah, and that's a really, it's a very, it's a terrifying um, power structure that that's in place, and it's and it's really meant to to further oppress and marginalize those who already are on the margins. Um, and so, and, and you even mentioned that there's, um, that like, how do we, you can't just have catch all phrases to attempt to censor or, you know, prevent, like do, do content policing because, um, yeah. And, and you talk about, for example, how some of these platforms or, or some of these, um, you know, blocking certain words and whatnot are preventing people from getting educated about STDs. Or uh, you know, breastfeeding, menstruation, and things that are just part of human life—so mm-hmm. devastating.
2: Yeah, it really is. And like a couple of the the really um, key examples, these are these are you know historic ones. Some of this has changed over time, but like the 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 breast uh, the breast cancer example really really killed me. This was years ago, and it was Microsoft Bing. And when they first launched in like 2010, they had picked. And again, like some of this was because of, st- of government rules. Um, some of it was their own bad market research. But they basically created a set of countries where if you use Microsoft Bing's search function, you you had safe search imposed upon you. So most of us can choose safe search. Maybe we want to have that for our kids or whatever. Um, But this was like imposed on entire populations. And so if you were in an Arabic speaking country and you did uh, a search in the Arabic language, you would not be able to search anything about breast cancer, chicken breast. I mean, it was just so blunt and badly done. Yeah. Um, they also had called it like the Arabian countries, which is just, no, you don't say that. That's not, yeah. that's not the term. <laughs> um, like who, who came up with this? <laughs> so cringeworthy. Exactly. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, that really struck me. And that was one of those early ones. And I didn't find out for years that it was because of bad market research. And so that because of that, that was just a person at that company who let it slip to me. Um, I ended up like digging into market research quite a bit in one of the chapters of the book. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to uncover too much. But what I found was that when it comes to, uh, again, like what I'll roughly call the Arabic speaking world, because it's not a monolith in any way. um, But But when it came to those countries, I found that most of the major tech companies employ market research firms that are American or European, that have their headquarters in Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates, which are both two pretty conservative and authoritarian countries. Um, and that they the research is kind of often conducted by foreigners in those countries with, with locals. But again, those local populaces are much more restrictive than, say, Lebanon or Morocco or the vast majority of the region. Um, and so you end up with these policies that are based on, I hate to say this, but kind of the lowest common denominator of um, belief and expression. And that's what ends up being like dirga for the rest of the region. I just find that to be horrific. And we see kind of the same thing happen with, um, in in other parts of the world with reclaimed terms. So like I'll use an example that I think will be familiar to most people, the word dyke, which was used as a slur against lesbians for many years, but then was taken back by the community as an identity term, like we are dykes. Um, And, that term often gets blocked by companies that just are too lazy to employ human beings to make a decision about what is hateful and what is um, reclaimed terms. And of course, you can imagine how that extrapolates out to other terms that are, have been reclaimed by various communities as well in multiple languages.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, you make really great points about how this is, um, I mean, we're just missing so much context in in terms of, you know, you can't just the U.S. can't just come in and and think that they understand, like, cultural nuances and, you know, historical context to be able to just kind of make these blanket statements and, and censorship. It's just so bizarre and and, and destructive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, in you talk, and I, one of the things that I found super fascinating in your book was, um, which we all, we all know about it, but we don't, you know, you do a really great job to, to dive in to the what content moderators do, that there's actually people who, you know, real humans that when when you say, oh, you know, I don't want to see this, you know, and you say, oh, this is, you know, it's spam, it's inappropriate, it's this and that, that it goes to somebody, um, sometimes it's machine, but there are human beings that look at this, and just how difficult of a job that is. So I really appreciated that you not only humanized that job, but also saying, hey, you know what, maybe we're just doing a little too much community police, uh, policing that doesn't need to be done. <laughs> and so um, can, you, can you talk more about that whole concept and idea behind you know, community policing, content policing, and, and the people that are, that are doing it on both sides? Yeah, absolutely.
2: I mean, when I first started getting into the issue of platform platform censorship, as I roughly call it, um, I had blogged about a specific instance where Facebook had blocked the use of the term Palestinian. It was it turned out to po- probably be a bug, could have been malicious. We don't really know. Um, but that's when my dialogue with Facebook began. And they actually, this was before I was at EFF, they actually reached out to me, a blogger, um, to tell me, hey, thanks for spotting that. Uh, we fixed it now. And by the way, we'd love for you to talk to us instead of writing about it when you find these mistakes. And I was like, okay, interesting. Um, and I never stopped writing about it. And that really made them angry a lot of the time. But one of the first people that I was in dialogue with at the company, um, I didn't really know what his job was at the time because he was doing a lot of external facing policy too. But when I, when I was writing the book, I realized that he'd been quoted in a number of pieces as a content moderator um, around 2009, 2010. And so his, I, I don't name him in the book and I'm not going to name him now, but his job was actually as content moderator. And that was like before that was really known. And he was based in Palo Alto. He was a Stanford grad. And he was like doing this work at Facebook headquarters. So this was very you know, meticulous and careful work back then when the company was small. Over the years, and Sarah T. Roberts has done the best documentation of this, in my opinion. Um, Kate Klonick, who's a, a lawyer and scholar, has done a lot of great work around it. Um, but over time, these platforms ended up Outsourcing that work to third party firms in various countries around the world, including the US, but also in particular the Philippines. And um, I. I had like I knew what this job was. I talked to some content moderators in countries like Morocco actually to bring that back around. Um and I interviewed uh this this guy in the book who um was one of the original sources for some of the stuff that came out around 2012 about Facebook and how they police their content. Um but long story short, you know, I I was not I didn't these folks were doing this work this whole time, you know, Sarah and Kate and everyone. Um and around 2017 I think it was, I met this guy um Moritz who um, ended up making this film called The Cleaners which actually was like the first film to go in and and talk to these people on camera and show some of the the workers in the Philippines who were doing this job Um, and he brought me in to do a little bit of work on the film, I conducted some research for them I'm in the credits, my voice is in the very beginning but ultimately like he put this film together that really um, showed this research, the deep research that folks like Sarah had been doing and showed the world um, kind of what this looked like and And, you know, so I, that was really kind of my jumping off point for digging into this a bit more deeply, talking to those folks who I got to meet over the years um, and looking at it from a little bit of a, different perspective than they had because they were coming at it from like analyzing the role of the workers and looking at these systems. And I was looking at it from more of a sociological viewpoint of like, how are people impacted by this? And I think, you know, we're all, we're all friends. We all talk, um, but I think all of this kind of coming together really broadened the scope and the picture of what this looks like. Um, And ultimately, you know, my perspective on it is that it's a little different from, from some of my colleagues, but my perspective is that I find it really problematic that we've outsourced the role of cleaning up the internet to people in low-income countries for low wages um, so that we in the West don't have to see this horrible stuff. Um, and so there has to be a better way out there, and there has to be a better system for the vast majority of speech um, that, we, that we want to see moderated in some way. And this just really, to me, this isn't
1: it. Yeah, and, and you also make the point of uh, so much of the content, or it's it kind of goes back to that idea of like what is obscene and what is not, or what is distasteful versus what is not, and what should just straight up not be on there, right? So it's the idea of like, well, as you mentioned earlier, pretty much everyone's on board of you know not having anything that is you know exploitative to children, uh, and and of course there are nuance and details to that, but that's something that you certainly don't want to see. But what about everything else, which seems like much of this content is really just like, oh, I don't, I don't really like that, <laughs> so I don't, I don't want to see it. Yeah, right? and I gotta
2: say, like, I'm really troubled by the current moment and the current on the left. And I mean, I come from like a more traditional left background, um, but I'm, I'm concerned with like kind of the, the younger left um, and what they want to see censored too, because what. <laughs> Look, I have to say it this way, that I I empathize with it a lot more than I empathize, empathize with the right and the things that they want to see censored. I know that a lot of people, and particularly historically marginalized communities and people of color who advocate for some form of censorship are usually coming from a place of seeking justice and not a place of authoritarianism. And so I, you know, I think that that's probably different from a lot of other people, how other people see this kind of current, like, quote, quote, cancel culture moment. Um, yeah. But I see it as like justice seeking, even though I often find it misguided. And so, you know, when I look at this, I mean, I think obviously, like, there are some things that we are all that we should maybe all agree with are terrible. I think that, you know, sedition, (laughs) treason, child sexual abuse imagery, like that stuff that we really need to think about how to filter. But I think for the most part, the way that these companies and even some states have dealt with this is just piling regulation upon regulation on top of each other until we've got this like intractable layered onion situation where nothing makes sense anymore. Um, And so, you know, what I want to see is us go back to basic principles, start with Article 19. Um, Maybe, I don't know if we want to modify it for the, 21st century at all, but I think that Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the ICCPR is my starting point. Um, And of course, the tricky bit of it is that there is uh, an allowance for restrictions of speech based on a couple of things, one of which is um, you know, um, loss of dignity, hateful speech, the other public order, which that one troubles me a bit more in most cases and the ways that that's been used by states. But ultimately, I mean, I think that that's a good starting point and anything on top of that, we should just immediately remove. And so, you know, I, why are we censoring the human body in, in 2021? Why is that a thing anymore? Um, And again, I think that with these companies, it's a catering to some of the most restrictive states in the world, rather than starting from, again, the like first principles that, hey, maybe, (laughs) maybe there's no reason. Reason for this? Maybe this is you know valuable expression. Um, I spent most of today at the Neues Museum in Berlin, looking at um, the Egyptian exhibit and looking at these nude statues from ancient Egypt. And so I can go see those. I can see those on Facebook, but I can't see a modern depiction of nudity. What is that going to mean in a thousand years when we look back at artifacts of today? Is porn going to be our only um, depiction of of like the female form? I mean, that to me is just so troublesome. Um, And so yeah, so ultimately. I mean, I just think that we need to um, go back to the beginning and audit all of these rule books and start from the beginning and, and like piece them back together and decide what we as society think is really harmful um, on these platforms at scale. And, you know, like I said, maybe that will be things like um, maybe Trump really doesn't need to have a space on those platforms. But I don't think that we can decide that based on the way that the rules are right now.
1: That's a fantastic point, Jillian. I, I, I um, you know... <laughs> So to think about how did we become, for lack of a better word, so puritanical, yeah. and, you know, and looking at, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, we go back to look at, you know, Egyptian Egyptian art and, and it's, let's, and you, when you contextualize that history, it's like, okay, well, where, why are we at where we're at now, right? It's because it's almost like we're starting with the most restrictive point of views and perspectives possible, rather than, as you mentioned, starting at a at a more freer space because if really a thousand years from now that the, they can see just hardcore pornography as being our, our nude expressions, then what are they going to think? <laughs> right. Because, like, well, <laughs> yeah. that, that's one that is, that is one place where the, the nudity occupies. So yeah, that's a, that's a really fascinating, and I think a, a very complex argument to, to think, well, how, what can we do because it's, you know, and, and when things become so polarized and political as they have been, uh, especially here in the States over the last few years, it just becomes almost like an impossible conversation to have when it really shouldn't be impossible.
2: Exactly. And I'm really glad that you used the word complex um, because that's kind of where I'm at right now with um, complexity of thought. I mean, there's this psychological concept that I don't know if most people are familiar with, I'm sure you are, but like the concept of splitting um, and this is you know prevalent in a lot of um, psychological theory and some certain mental illnesses. But the idea is like when people see things in very binary terms, like this person is good, this person is bad um, based on, you know, one or five things that they've ever said. Um, <laughs> and I think about that a lot. And I think about the way that societally we've come to this point of splitting. And I think that that's really like where cancel culture again, using big quotes around it, because I think it's misused. Um, But I think that that's where that's at, where we think, you know, okay, this person said this one thing one time, they're bad. Um, And I think that that's really what troubles me about where we are right now. And it's not, again, I don't think it's, like, I think that the biggest problem around the discourse about cancel culture right now is that we're pinning it solely on, like, the so-called identitarian left, when in fact the right has always done the exact same thing and so has everybody else. Um, We just do it in different ways. And so I think that it's really important for us to bring back or bring in to play um, a new complexity of thought that is not along these binaries. And it's really hard in this kind of 24-hour constant, like let's throw everything at you with advertisements, et cetera, media media ecosystem. Um, And so you know, I'm, I'm actually happy to see in the pandemic like, I know Clubhouse has come under a lot of criticism for various reasons, but every time I've tapped into it, the conversations that go on for a couple hours at a time are much deeper and complex in the same way that podcasts are, um, in the same way that, you know, certain programs on certain platforms are. And so I'm, you know, I'm actually happy, like, I know that, again, Substack getting a lot of criticism right now for various reasons, some deserved, but at the same time, like, I think that that allows that kind of long, that return to long form allows us to go back to, to, you know, this, this, um, different dialectic, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm super, super excited about being able to engage on a more complex level these days. And I hope that this, I hope that this moment, I hope we go off in that, um, into that timeline, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's important to have the, these conversations and to see that, you know, it's not, a you know, honestly, I mean, not to, not to be cliche, but there's something about the idea of mindfulness and, and grounding and, and just kind of how we talk to ourselves and like self-compassion that speaks to this where, you know, to say, oh, I feel bad versus I am bad. You know, it's like, I think we're so, you know, um, we like internalize shame and we internalize these things, which I think in some ways are quote universal of feeling that way. And and we live in a world um, currently where if you're not this or that, like, you know, just gender binaries, for example, and how that's just that, that's, that's an old system that we don't, we don't need that anymore. So let's figure something else out that's better. And, and even what I tell my students, like, this goes far beyond political lines. It's about, we have to remember that we are humans and it's really humanizing these humanizing, uh, even to technology in the sense of not so much the technology, but the fact that there's people on both sides of that, you know, so even content moderators, like before you click on, I don't like this, realize that somebody else has been looking at crap all day long and making a dollar a (laughs) day. Exactly. the, the human aspects of all of this.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely, and I'm glad that you you mentioned like gender in this sense because I think that actually the thought around that at the moment um, is really deeply connected to the to the thinking around speech, um, and so yeah, just in the same way that like a lot of folks' minds, even <laughs> it's interesting, is even folks who are a little bit a little bit open minded about um, gender but still see it as on a binary. So like you can be biologically cis uh, male or female, or you can switch, but there's nothing Thing in between, right? Um, right? I know "switch" that's a very loose term, and I don't, I don't intend it that way. But um, I think that that's how some people view it. Sure. Um, and I think that 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 inability to like see outside of that box is just so similar to um, the way that our thought around certain speeches at the moment, and the way that like our thought around certain political ideologies is at the current moment. Um, and it's interesting that all of this is coming about at the same time, and yet. Um, it's also interesting that it doesn't really cross over. Like some of the most sensorial um, points of view that I see right now are coming from some of the same communities that are much more open-minded about gender. And that troubles me. I get Again, I get why, I empathize why, because I think that when you are in one of the most persecuted com- communities in the world, you are much more likely to see certain censorship as acceptable because you're, because you're under siege so much of the time from hate speech, harassment, et cetera. So again, I get it. But I also I feel like we've got to open that dialogue to be able to see a lot of these things as kind of existing on similar planes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I another thing that you bring up in the book that that I, I feel it relates to what we're talking about right now is, um, you know, the people using pseudonyms or fake names, and just how that um, and how problematic that is in terms of how it's being policed. Like, where some someone with a you know it's their real name. And they get blocked and they get flagged and taken off of platforms. Can you talk about more about perhaps what kind of what is interesting to you about what's happening with um, with naming, uh, with naming conventions and how platforms are policing that and what that really means to us as a society and what what can really do to, to make that um, part better?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Facebook came online with a rule that you had to use your real name. Now, that's changed over the years to be your authentic name, quote, quote. But it's still basically the same concept, that you have to use your birth name in some form or another. And when that first happened 10 years ago, I was was definitely... much less aware of issues around gender and name and like like i I probably had never heard the term dead name back then i don't even know if it existed Um, and so although i was vaguely aware you know still pretty ignorant let's say and so um back then you know my thought around this was still like i had a very strong reaction to like how dare you you know how dare you tell people that they have to use a certain name and mark zuckerberg was famously quoted as um, saying that he believed that more than one identity was a a sign of a lack of integrity. And so, you know, I, I, again, back then I was not seeing this in a gendered context so much as I was in a context of, say, living in an authoritarian country where it's not safe to publish online using your real name. Or perhaps um, one of the other examples back then that I had was like, even just looking at people whose names sit outside of um, Western conventions. So like Indonesia, mononyms are really common. And, Facebook requires you to have a first name and a last name. So it's very like, we believe in it this way, you know, this is how it's done. Um, And then over the years, of course, as, uh, you know, I I think most of us in our generations, I, I don't know. Well, you are, but like I'm 38 and um, I've had a large number of friends that I grew up with and friends that I, are around my age um, come out as transgender or non-binary and a large majority of them have changed their names. And so that, that and the public culture zeitgeist, of course, made me much more aware of what that means for someone um, who doesn't feel like their name or their gender fits them right like that's just to me that's it's it's a different use case than the other ones that i gave but it's so like it hits me to my core um you know, some of my best friends have changed their names either because they're trans or because they have had to for other reasons. And so, um, yeah, I mean, just the idea that Facebook, you know, is still kind of pursuing this rule. Yes, they've certainly like they've made concessions. Um, a lot of it had happened around 2014 and 15 because of uh, the the kind of persecution of drag performers in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and those folks who. I don't want to say they're privileged, obviously, like they do come from a marginalized community, but they're certainly more privileged than the majority of people that this rule affects around the world. And as such, a lot of them did an incredible job of protesting the company, pushing back really hard and um, And as a result, got Facebook to change their rule to allow people to use, um, again, what they call their authentic name. And so that meant that if you were, say, um, a drag performer or a hacker uh, who was known by a different name in, in in regular parlance, you were able to use your performing name or your hacker name. And then later that kind of got expanded to include people who had changed their their first names because they were trans. Um, And and so there are exceptions now, but it still does impact a lot of people who are not able to prove that with documentation. And so trans people who haven't changed their identification um, or who don't have a way to prove that that's their name in real life still come under fire under Facebook's policy all the time for this. Um, And I just find it absolutely ridiculous that this company continues to insist that, um, you know, that using like a name that's on your ID is still like really important.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I agree with you because, you know, this is even going at the most basic level, people use their middle name or use a, a, even like a derivative of another name or they have nicknames. I mean, this is such a common thing that uh, it's it's kind of silly. And then there's safety things and then there's you know that, as you mentioned the the you know the the gendered thing, and it just like people's concept of identity is individual to them. So the idea that you know a government, so we go back to the government, a government issued ID is what determines your sex and what determines um, you know your your name. And it's like, well, it's a it's a piece of paper. You know, we all have have names given to us at birth and and whatnot. But I do think that that's it it is problematic when we think about it, um, particularly in, you know, we're in 2021 and it seems like these are still issues that continue occurring. Like for me, I personally, I, um, I've also just used pseudonyms, like they're derivatives of my name. So it's not like I'm trying to pretend like I'm somebody else, which I'm not, but also because, you know, I, I teach. And so I don't necessarily want my students finding me on social media and things like Mm -hmm. that, you know? So it's like, super basic stuff, as well as like really complex issues of identity. So yeah, I, I agree with you that it's, you know, why are, why, does there, why does there have to be like this fight with the Yeah. With-
2: yeah. But, you know, I still don't really understand it because Facebook continues to push this line that people are more civil when they use their real names. But we know that that's not true. I mean, we know <laughs> that from the past four years, especially that that's not at all true. Right. Um, And it's... <laughs> it's not Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't really make sense. And like, like you said, like, there's a lot of good reasons. And I think it's really interesting, too, that they're still kind of seeing it in this very narrow light of like, okay, well, we understand trans people's issues. So we'll cater to that. But I have a bunch of female friends, um, cis, trans, whatever, doesn't matter, who use their first and middle names on Facebook, because it's safer for them, because they don't want men to find them. Yes. And, and those oh. folks have gotten kicked off too, because like, oh, it's not acceptable to not use your, your last name. And when you think about the concept of last name in Western society, it's basically, it's a patronym. Um, and so this is like, this is a very, very patriarchal idea that they're continuing to push. And I, I understand, you know, why governments have to do this. Like it's unfortunate, but it's fact in this society. Like we, we do have to have some form of ID there's, you know, there's arguments for that that I think are completely fair. And yet, you know, governments are coming around to the idea that you can change your name uh, much more easily than you used to be able to. And so I think it's it's very retrograde for Facebook to to continue this belief.
1: It, it really is. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, yeah, leaving, you know, for example, I, you know, I have a very unique last name. And so leaving it off of um, certain platforms to me, I just, yeah, I just feel safer. It's not like I'm wanting to, to you know, deceive somebody um, and yeah, and as, and as, you mentioned, it's just, you know, uh, using your real name, there's, the civility is not tied into names. It's tied into behavior. <laughs> so if, if you don't want to be civil, you're not going to be civil. Right? Exactly.
2: Yeah. No. And, and, you know, the funny thing, like I use, I use my middle initial and like, I can't use the period after the C on a ton of platforms, including credit cards. Um, they just haven't really come around to that concept. And I'm like, okay, so now, you know, I've got to type my name differently and that's not a big deal. But one of my favorite examples about this is, um, uh, the, there's a woman who's, I forget her first name, but she's a journalist. Her last name is Wiener. And she can't sign up for a variety of platforms because there's like a block list. I, I know I grew up with another guy whose last name was Butt. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not that uncommon. Yeah, it's not uncommon. I don't know how we ended up with these names, but we did. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact that people could be banned just for using their real name is also absurd. And it's just, it shows the limits of thought and the limits of technology at the same time.
1: Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Um, yeah. Julian, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, as we wrap up, I'm definitely curious to know what, what's next for you. What are you currently working on? What, what can we see um, after this awesome book that you wrote?
2: Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, right now I'm not sure. This is kind of, I mean, I'm not technically a first time author. There is another book out there that people can find, but it's not related to this subject at all. Um, But um, this is my first time doing a book at this level um, where I'm getting this much press and attention for it. So I'm kind of, you know, I've got the door open at the moment. I'm not to, you know, not to like advertise that and put that out there, but (laughs) I'm not really sure. You know, I I love my job at EFF. I've also been there for a decade, which is a very, very long time. Um, And I think that what Whatever comes next, you know. Like I said, I am a writer at heart, um, and so I've been kind of exploring what else there is that I'm curious to write about. And I think, you know, a lot of it is um, moving a little bit away from the platforms, but still along the lines of speech, politics, and society. So, yeah, I'm not really sure what comes next. I'm just kind of waiting and seeing and enjoying the moment.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, because I mean, (laughs) such a like. In, in some, in some spaces, this is literally just like fresh, fresh off the press. So yeah, take some time. And, and yeah, I, I think you're in a, I think you're in a great spot. So um, that, that's amazing. I really appreciate um, you coming on. And I appreciated your, your book. I think it's, um, it's really great. You, you, you touch up on some very important things that, you know, uh, that we just need to have more conversations around and more inclusive conversations.
2: Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I really enjoyed this as well.
1: Yeah. So, um, thank you again, um, Jillian, for for joining us, and thank you to our listeners uh, for tuning in. Um, until next time, everyone. Cheers.